Side Hustle Show 251, when a side project fails, lessons, pivots, and next steps from a less than successful side project. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, because if you're not failing, you're probably not pushing yourself. This is a take on something my dad would say when he was teaching my brother and I how to ski when we were kids, like after an epic wipeout. Hey, if you're not falling, you're not getting any better. Special Friday edition of the show for you today. And it's one I wasn't even sure I wanted to record. So I asked in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group, which you can join at sidehustlenation.com slash FB if you're not already a member, I asked if a failure episode would be one, compelling, and two, helpful, or if it would be like, why am I listening to this? And I was actually really surprised by the response. The thread had 50 plus comments overwhelmingly in favor of doing it, provided their were going to be applicable lessons and takeaways. So this week's show is my attempt at that, to highlight someone's side project that didn't turn out to be a runaway success. Dustin Lean from strategicsauce.com, love that domain, graciously volunteered to give me a behind-the-scenes tour of his business flop, uh, a physical product in the health and fitness space. So stay tuned to hear how he manufactured and marketed that item, what he'd do differently if he had to do it over, and ultimately why he threw in the towel. You'll also hear what Dustin is working on today and why he thinks this setback actually helped him become a better entrepreneur. Notes, links, and a free downloadable PDF highlight reel summary from this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash failure. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Dustin after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. So the business was called Fitfly Shaker, and it was a disposable supplement shaker. Nick, I know you work out and stuff, so you're probably familiar with what a supplement shaker is. For anyone that's not, it's basically just for putting protein powder in or any kind of sports supplement, and you shake it up, and then you drink it before your workout, after your workout, however you do it. And so traditionally, with the regular plastic shakers that are on the market, you have to clean them. Like Just for whatever reason, the plastic they're made out of, if you don't clean it immediately you end up throwing it away because the smell is unbearable after that. <laughs> okay. There's like a 24-hour like window. If it's sitting in your sink, it's it's a goner. Okay, so this is like a glorified, this is like a plastic bag with a nozzle on it, with like a lid on it. It is a glorified Ziploc bag, yeah. That, that's what it was. <laughs> okay. But targeting a very specific market, like bodybuilders, you know, people who are super into fitness and say, I, I got to get my protein powder into me as quick as I can after the workout and the traditional water bottle route isn't doing it for me. Exactly. And so it, it just makes it easier. You can, it was fully recyclable, so you could take it with you on the go. It was great for traveling. A lot of fitness competitors like to use them because they, instead of having to pack in their luggage when they're traveling to compete, having to pack bulky plastic shakers and their supplement tubs and all this stuff, you could pre-pack the FitFly shakers and they would lay flat like a Ziploc does. Okay. And so you can load a bunch of them in your luggage. So it just made it really convenient. Okay. Was anybody else already doing something similar on the market or was the closest competitor the big plastic kind of like water bottle looking ones there were two main competitors already doing it so one of them was funny enough ended up being it was almost the exact same design it was very very close and i found out later we had the same manufacturer oh okay kind of funny which makes sense why it was similar looking and then there was another competitor doing something it was basically like a like, you know, when you order coffee at a coffee shop or something and it comes just in a plastic cup and you put a lid on it, mm -hmm. 
it was kind of like that, but they, they had a custom top that sealed it. So those were the two main competitors when I started with this. Okay. What else did you do in market research before you said you're going to go into this? Or was this, was this a pain point of yourself? Were you in the bodybuilding, super weightlifting fitness world? Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was somewhat scratching my own itch. I had been lifting weights hard for probably 12 or 13 years now. And I've done a couple of competitions. And so it's very, it's something I use regularly as supplement shakers. And okay. a lot of my friends also do. So it was, it was kind of scratching the itch of, of mine and a few close friends. Okay. When did you decide, okay, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to go forward with this. So I talked to a couple of friends and kind of like a pre-validation, like, okay, if I actually try to make this, will anybody buy it? Or am I just going to go find a manufacturer and make thousands of these and then they're going to sit in my apartment? <laughs> so I, I found a few friends and said, hey, will you, would you buy this if I had these made? And I kind of got a rough, a rough idea of what they might cost. And I got about 10 friends say, yes, they would. And so I sent them a link right away to PayPal to say, like, you said you'd buy it, so prove it. <laughs> okay. I don't trust you verbally. Yeah. Joe, put your money where your mouth is. Okay. And so they, yeah, they forked up whatever, 10 bucks or something like that. And then that kind of gave me the confidence that, okay, people might pay for this. And uh, that's when I decided to look further into it and actually go into the manufacturing process. Okay. Was it 10 bucks for not a single bag? It was like oh, yeah. a pack of them. It's for, it's for a, a 10 pack. Yeah. So okay. about a buck a piece. Okay. And then, then you're going down the, the path of, okay, how do I get this thing made? Did you prototype it or was the other thing that was the one competitor with the same design? Did you somehow find that one and be like, okay, can the factory make one like that for me? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't find the competitor's exact one right away. But what I did is I went on Alibaba. It's kind of like the Amazon for imported goods. Right. Typed in just anything I could to try to explain what I was trying to make. So yeah. it was like Ziploc bag that stands and has a spout. And I was just typing random stuff and found a couple of manufacturers that had pictures of things that looked close to what I was wanting. So I reached out to a handful of those that seemed the most credible. I just gone on my computer and, and used something similar to paint and just basically drew a little prototype no markings or anything, no technical drawings. I just sent that over and said, hey, can you make something like this that, you know, similar to this other bag I saw that you had? Yeah. And they were able to help me with the technical drawings and move the process forward that way. Okay. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you get this thing made. What was your initial order quantity or what was your upfront capital for this? So the first order, it was 4,500 units. And that cost about, to get them made and delivered, it was about $1,400. Okay. So you've got $1,400 invested into this business plus your own website, which was fitflyshaker.com. Looks like it's no longer active. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's the go-to-market plan at this point? You got 10 friends that said yes, and now you got 4,500 units. Are they in your house, your apartment, or are they sitting in Amazon's warehouse? What's going on? Sitting in my apartment in front of my closet, <laughs> okay. which I know my wife loved. Sure, sure. Just, yeah, boxes of them. And so I, I get them delivered. First thing I do is get them in the hands of my, my friends who said, yes, I'll, I'll try some out. Yeah. And then started just collecting feedback to see what they thought of it. Did it work like they 
assumed it would? Is there a clear design flaw that I'm missing? Kind of a, a mini round of of feedback from, from close friends yeah. is where I started. Was the plan to sell kind of on the Dollar Shave Club model of like, hey, this is a disposable thing. You're going to need this every month. Click here to subscribe. That is how it originally started. So I had the subscription model is it's really a hot model right now. A lot of people are trying to get on that. And it makes sense because, you know, you sell someone one time and you get a recurring payment. And the issue I ran into early on was that since there wasn't a main, like a disposable shaker wasn't a thing on the market that was very well known yet. Okay. There was kind of a barrier of me saying, hey, look at this new thing. And then I'm trying to, you know, explain on the website how it works, what it is. And then on top of that, I'm saying subscribe for, you know, month to month payments here. So it's kind of something like the Dollar Shave Club where everyone already knows what a razor is. Everyone needs to use one who uses one and they already know that. So it's easier for them to jump on subscription. But with my product, there was a, a definite barrier of not understanding what it was and kind of wanting to try it out before they jumped on an entire subscription. Okay. What did you find was the most effective way to get in front of in front of your target customers? Well, first, there were a lot of things that did not work. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things I was trying to do is be very mindful of what is not working and stop doing those things, even if yeah. they're popular things to be doing. And so some of the things that I was doing that did work is, so starting with that core group of friends I had is asking them to refer people. So usually when someone buys something, they have an inner circle of friends also that maybe I don't know right? that also might like the product. So I would ask them after they purchased, who do you know? Who else do you know that might, that might like this? And that was a quick way for me to start getting in front of new people and say, so-and-so referred you to me and said, you might like this. Do you want to give it a try? That was under the column of what worked or what didn't work? That's under the column of what worked. Okay. Okay. I like it. This is, I mean, the same way that PayPal and Dropbox did it, right? It's like, hey, you know, we'll give your friend 10 bucks if they sign up or we'll give them an extra bit of storage. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like makes the person look good for giving their friend a coupon or a deal or something and or referring them to a, a new product they might fall in love with. It helped me really get that initial group of customers so I could test more on, you know, price and what was working and what wasn't. Okay. And on the mechanics behind the scenes, that was a, a discount on the the friend's order or is that like a discount on the referrer's next order? How did that work? The way I set it up was, uh, you know, I'm fairly tech savvy, but I'm not the greatest and best at it. So I wasn't really figuring out much of a way to get a coupon for the person referring. What I did is I just made sure that every new person their first order, they got 10% off and free shipping. Okay. And so I just made that kind of the pitch. And then each person that bought also got 30% off their second order. So that was kind of a, a workaround way to incentivize people to help out a little more. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. 
Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes. T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster, and 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors, and what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What else? The other things that worked, so for me, I was trying to find just methods of sales and marketing that were repeatable and scalable. And repeatable is not so hard, but the scalable one is is difficult to find, especially in the beginning because you're trying to grow fast, but also trying not to forget the, the unscalable things. In addition to the referrals, one thing I was doing that was not really scalable, but ended up being, you know, by the time I shut it down, it was still my number one method of sales was just one-on-one messaging people on Facebook groups. So like fitness Facebook groups, I was trying to be very active in them and kind of get to know some of the people in there. And then I would Facebook message them individually and say, hey, I have this product. Do you want to try it? Here's a discount code for your first order. And going one-on-one like that is something that really proved to do to do well with a product that was a little bit harder to explain. Oh, okay. And people were open to that or they're like, who's this guy who's spamming us? Yeah, some people yeah, some people are super confused or don't respond or say no thanks, and that's fine. You know, that's something that's something I had to get over is that not everyone's going to think it's the, the greatest thing like I do and push through those moments. And then another thing that's kind of just reminded me of is a hack for getting people to become a first-time customer. With the barrier of people not understanding necessarily what it was right away, I didn't want to lose money by giving them away for free because there's still shipping costs. There's my manufacturing costs. So one thing that worked pretty well was making a just a couple of questions survey. It was like a two-question survey just asking about where they typically buy their supplements and like online or in stores and what's their favorite type of supplement. Okay. So kind of just a little bit of data for me for later, but then also in response to that, if they filled that survey out, they would get a, a free 10-pack. They just had to pay $2.95 shipping. And that got probably 50 customers really early on to get in the system. 
did you ever go the route of trying to get in brick and mortar like GNCs or like in supplement stores locally? Yep. So I went around to, I'm in Los Angeles and there's this one place, I think it's called LA Urban Fitness or something like that. They have a couple locations and I went and met with their GM a couple of times. I don't know for whatever reason, it was it was just really tough. Like I offered free product, I offered to do demos in the store, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Just locking that in was was really difficult at the local level. And so I was trying to get in also at with Gold's Gym, which got pretty close with, but the sales volume wasn't high enough for them to want to take a risk on it. Okay. So that was something that I was running into. But it's also something I think looking back now, I think I should have been more persistent with because, you know, anytime you have a product that my margins, I had 50% margins, but the product is only 10 bucks. So I'm making five bucks on each 10 pack I'm selling. So you really have to sell some volume to make it a, a viable business and distribution was probably the only route that would have made it something that's sustainable. So I think I could have gone harder on that. Yeah. It's like all this one-on-one stuff. You're doing a ton of work for that $5 profit. Yeah. You know, you have just all the little tiny expenses that add up to like, I was using ShipStation for the fulfillment. And so that's whatever, 10 bucks a month. There's just stuff like that that starts to add up. And it started making me think like, okay, if I keep selling one-on-one via text messages forever, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to scale this, but it was definitely something that got people initially to become first-time customers and then start to rebuy after that. Okay. Were you sending people to your website or did you create a listing on Amazon for this? Or is it like, hey, for a $10 product, the fees are going to eat into any profit here? Yeah. So I did. I was selling both on my website using WooCommerce at first, and I eventually switched to Shopify. I had a listing on Amazon as well. You know, it was interesting because at, at first I was hesitant to do both of those things. I'm not really sure why. Maybe just because I was trying to focus attention. But when I put it up on Amazon, it actually got... I was finding that a lot of people didn't realize that if they just went to the website, it was going to be cheaper because all the fees are less going directly through my website. But a lot of people just like the convenience of buying on Amazon. They can include it in orders they were already making. Yeah. Did you do it FBA or did you do it Merchant Fulfilled? Merchant Fulfilled. Okay. When did it become apparent that, okay, this is not going to be what I'd hoped it was going to be? (laughs) (laughs) Like it's not growing as much as I want it to be or it's not in in what way? Yeah. I mean, so you're making, you're making some sales and so it can be tough to, I mean, did you have a, did you have a goal in mind for what you expected this business to be doing six months or a year into it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my goal was after a year to be having revenue at 5,000 a month. Okay. And just for context, after a year, it was at about $500 a month. So very different from what I expected. Yeah. You're at, you're at 10% of your goal. Yeah. So, so that's a little disheartening. So there was definitely a moment about, about a year in where I started really looking at things and questioning, okay, do I need to change my methods? What things am I doing that seem to be making money, but really are losing me money because I'm not able to focus on on maybe getting distribution or other things that would have made sales. So probably about a year in, I started really pondering those things and questioning if the company was going to be sustainable or not. Yeah. And so that's $500 a month in, in revenue. So around $250 a month in profit or in gross profit. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're hustling like crazy to get those customers. 
yeah, and it's and I'm you know I'm doing all the packaging up and shipping myself. Literally everything. It was it was a, it was a lot of work. Yeah, not not a very passive business. I was gonna say, shoot, if it's no. spinning off some cash, you could go ahead, you could sell it or something. But it sounds like a lot of work for not a lot of return. Mm-hmm. So this is a year deep into it. What changed at that point, or or was it time to say, look, I'm gonna do one last ditch effort, or what's going on? I kind of had a moment of of saying, okay, for six more months. If I don't hit my goal in six months of five thousand a month in revenue, then I'm going to shut the doors. So I was trying to give myself some kind of you know hard deadline, but also an opportunity to check myself and go all in if I wasn't already doing that. Okay. But I actually, after about three months of the six months, the revenue just wasn't moving, and I kind of had to make that internal decision because anytime you're doing something at all, anything. It means you're not able to do other things. Your time is somewhere. It can't be somewhere else. I had to kind of question, is there progress that I'm seeing here that is going to create the outcome I want? And is the amount of input it's going to take to get there going to be worth it in the end? Or is this something where I can put my time elsewhere and have faster success or or maybe not even faster, but more, more meaningful success in something else? Okay, how many hours a week are you putting into it at this point? About 15 to 20. Okay, so that's a pretty significant side hustle. Is there something else? Is there a day job that's paying the bills or that's bringing in some revenue for you? What else is going on? Yeah, so in the very beginning of starting FitFly, I was working full-time at an agency doing marketing. And then I was able to get a couple of consulting clients that were covering my bills so I could try to focus more on it, more on FitFly. And so I, I had that sustaining me or close enough to sustaining me to where I could hustle up little things here and there. I think that was something that played into the decision I made when I had that ultimatum of do I stop or do I keep going was the consulting was starting to go well and I was getting more more calls and more a little more demand on that. So I had to kind of make the decision, do I keep putting 15 to 20 hours a week into FitFly when it you know nothing's really a guarantee? Or do I take that time and put it into the consulting and, and grow something there and have that be a larger revenue stream for me? Yeah, it's this it's always always this opportunity cost of well, yeah. I'm working for five or ten dollars an hour now, but if I can get this thing to a certain point, it could be hands off and it could be this cool passive income stream versus on the flip side, and a lot of people what turns people off from freelancing consulting is hey, you know, I'm just trading time for money and mm-hmm. you know that's never going to get me ahead but at the same time if you're putting 20 hours a week into both and you know one of them is delivering significantly more profit then it's makes it a little bit easier to make that transition but this is kind of the maybe the million dollar question for for everybody who's working on a side project that's kind of going a little bit slower than they had wanted it to or they're just not seeing the results how do you know when it's time to throw in the towel versus this is just the dip. And if I keep plowing through, I know I'm going to get there. Like everybody's seen the cartoon of the you know miner who turns around just inches away from all the diamonds. And yeah. it's, uh, it's a tough one. Yeah, that's, that's something that, man, I, I thought so much about. And, and honestly, I just, I don't know when, when you know or how you know. Maybe with vast experience, that's something that is predictable. But I think for the majority of us, there's no real way to tell if it's going to come out the other side or not. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the answer to that is always when you start to dread the work 
when it's <laughs> when it's not fun, when you don't look forward to it at all, that's when it's time to try a new project, try something else. But do you think given another six months or in a parallel universe, like if you could go back in time, anything that you would have done differently or, you know, more on the market research front or more, you know, different pricing strategies or marketing strategies, like could this thing have been a success in a different world? I think it could have been. I think looking back, I think I would have pushed distribution faster and earlier. One thing that, you know, on the marketing side, there were a couple of fitness influencers with, you know, big social media followings that I was sending free 10 packs to just to try them out and okay. no strings attached, just sending them to, to them with a note and saying, Hey, I'd love for you to try these out. And a lot of times they'd post about it and that would get me a little boost in sales. I think if I went back, I would try to partner with one of them more heavily, maybe give up a percent of the sales to have someone with a large influence in the fitness community my exact target market, help me push more there and have that as a resource to grow the customer base. I think that's something I would do thinking back on it now. Yeah. So some, set up some sort of affiliate program there. Yeah. And something and something substantial or, so, or something like a true partnership, because even with $5 margins, it's hard to even do affiliates with that because it's hard to incentivize someone to <laughs> do work for a buck or two, you know? Yeah. Would, I mean, would you have gone the route of selling like a hundred pack or something like that? Be like, dude, for my super fans, I put together this package and you could eventually get better production prices and get better margins and you'd only pay shipping once, all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I did, I went up as high as a 50 pack during testing some of it. And I did have someone, someone buy it. That reminds me of just another thing I was trying at one point that I think could have been successful too if I would have if I would have pushed harder with it is going instead of mass distribution through supplement stores and websites going more to like CrossFit studios or like smaller local gyms and selling them in bulk maybe selling them 200 of them at a time to use in their juice bar or or sell 10 packs at their store and get a discount something like that I think could have could have helped me ramp up the volume more and do a little bit less work on it. Okay. Yeah. You're doing more of kind of the, the bulk sale, wholesale thing versus trying to find customers one to twosie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of different levers to pull on this from the price, the packaging and the, the distribution and then kind of the different marketing partnerships. Mm-hmm. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious, did you end up selling the the 4500 that you got or do you still have some stacked up in the in the spare bedroom <laughs> I got rid of most of them I I sold about 4000 of them Okay 
So I've got 500 left in my closet probably, which that's fine. Just use them myself. So, <laughs> okay. Luckily I didn't lose a bunch of money or anything. It, it evened out pretty well. I maybe lost a couple hundred bucks at the end of the day. Okay. And that's one thing that's probably unique with physical products is worst case scenario, you can usually liquidate this stuff and at least break even. So I'm happy to hear that you at least broke even, you know, not accounting for your time, but like in terms of your, your upfront investment, what else happened as a result of this? I mean, are you, LA is not a cheap place to live. Are it's you not. <laughs> eating, eating ramen? Are you getting foreclosed on? What's, what's going on on the financial front or on the other side of a failed side project? You know, I think it, it actually wasn't that bad. The biggest repercussion was probably just the loss of time. But, you know, really when you, when you think about that, that's not even a huge loss. If you're actively thinking about what you learned from it and what you can apply to other things. Yeah. Thinking back on it, I, it's, I don't regret it at all. It's one of those things that I, I had the idea, I went for it, it didn't pan out the way I wanted it to, but now I know. And there's a lot of stuff I learned along the way. I think people get scared from starting a project based on the possible repercussions. Right. What I'm going to I'm going to lose my entire investment. I'm going to lose a year of my life, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's scary. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of fascinating in the past I've done some research on what those possible failures does to the brain and we all notice these things when we I think okay, I'm going to start this new project. Instantly we start thinking, okay, what if it all goes wrong and what if I don't have enough money to pay my rent? What if I lose my house? What if I can't buy clothes? If I can't feed my family? Like we yeah. jump to these really really extreme worst case scenarios that are very unlikely to happen and kind of forget that we do have some control in the situation. And then just thinking of what is risk? What does that really mean to each of us individually? For me, if I can get if I try something and I can get back and recover to the exact same position I'm in right now, or like go get a job again if I have to, whatever that looks like, yeah. it's not really that risky. It's not really that risky. That's a, that's a powerful thing. You know, examine, okay, what's your realistic worst case scenario? Not the one that you're, you know, envisioning, uh, you know, being destitute and starving and your family's out on the streets, but what's most likely to happen? And actually that's, that comes from a book called the top 10 distinctions between millionaires and the middle class. And it was this whole section on risk and says millionaires in the upper class tend to evaluate risk in a similar way where it's what's the best case scenario, what's the most likely scenario, and what's the worst case scenario. And it's like, if the most likely thing is positive, and, you, and if you can live with the worst case scenario, then, okay, maybe that's a chance you ought to take. And it kind of encourages you not to make a bet you can't afford to lose, but it kind of puts things, okay, here's what I think is about to happen. I can live with the worst case scenario. And Dustin, it's cool. I mean, you got farther than most people do. I mean, you got off the sideline, you imported a product from halfway around the world, you sold 4,000 of them. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious if this, I mean, was this your first rodeo? Was, I mean, or have you had other business ventures in the past? So this was, this was the first physical product okay. that I've tried. You know, in the digital consulting, marketing world, I've probably failed at 10 different things. Um, it's <laughs> okay. not exaggeration, real number, probably 10. Yeah, I mean, for the last five years prior, I was just constantly trying and failing at stuff. There's the first physical product, which, you know, has all different kinds of, it's a totally different game. Yeah, there's more upfront cost in most cases. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit 
what I liked about it is it forced me to take it seriously. I think with a lot of my old side projects, I wasn't forced to take it seriously because there was nothing on the line. But once you drop some money, there's a little bit more pressure to go all in and give it a shot. Okay, interesting. Are you worried about <laughs> landing clients on the marketing consulting side now that everyone knows you're a failure? I mean, has that has that impacted it at all? You know, oh, why should we hire this guy? He, you know, his last bit, his oh, last yeah. his last ten businesses flopped. That's a funny point. What's interesting is I've gotten more clients <laughs> since trying this, and even publicly on my blog, I wrote a post the second I decided to close Fitfly down. I wrote a post with my kind of my inner monologue, like what I was feeling and everything going on in my brain. Posted that publicly. Most of my clients have read it. It created a, a spirit of, of people wanting to back me even more and showing that I'm not afraid to be bold and try things. And it's actually gotten me more clients by being able to, like all the connections that I made through having the product while it was still up and running. Okay. Funny enough, the failure made me more successful on the other end. Okay, that's actually really interesting. Like some of the connections or some of the conversations that you had as a result of that have led into other projects. It's like, hey, you know, we we like this thing or we don't like this thing, but hey, you know, now you kind of open the door to to a new network, I guess. Yep, absolutely. All right, we will link up that blog post on strategic sauce. We'll put that in the in the show notes for you at sidehustlenation.com/dustin. So what's next? You focusing on the consulting biz or you think you go back into the e-commerce realm? What's the next uh, year or two look like for you? Yeah, definitely like right now focusing on just scaling the marketing consultancy and that's supporting me full time right now. So just trying to put a little more attention into that and grow it to a more comfortable level. And then just lately been really pushing to help aspiring people get off the fence and that's what, you know, my blog, strategicsauce.com, it's all about marketing strategies for entrepreneurs. It's very focused on newer entrepreneurs and people trying to do side hustles and, and giving them just things that I've learned from failing or things that I've learned in my successes or with clients that I work with and things that have worked really well for them, putting all those strategies in one place so people can learn from them, trying to talk about the real stuff. Not always the wins, but sometimes saying like, I failed and this is what that looked like. That's right. Well, that's what this is. That's what this episode is all about. You probably learn more from the, the failures than the successes. And sometimes that's what it that's what it takes. It's a really cool example of, well, this one didn't work out, but this thing just on the side of it, because it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you're kind of focusing on helping other businesses that are in the fitness space. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, a lot of what my consultancy is, is helping people who are trying to be more influential and, and build a, a following or maybe they have a, a product they're trying to launch and I can be that guy who connects them to their influencers so they can work together. Just really trying to help people build businesses around things that are purposeful to them. Well, very cool. Again, it's Dustin Lean from strategicsauce.com. Over there, you'll find marketing strategies for beginning early stage entrepreneurs, like you said. And there's a free seven-day side business academy, which I'll be right up, right up our alley at Side Hustle Nation. Dustin, thank you so much for joining me. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Give yourself permission to take action. Give yourself permission to take action. I like it. Dustin, thank you so much. And we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thanks, Nick. So Dustin did 
a lot of things right in the FitFly shaker business. I mean, he pre-sold the product when all it was was an idea, which is not easy to do. He didn't risk an inordinate or lifestyle-changing amount of money to bring it to market, and he tried a bunch of different sales strategies with varying degrees of success. Yet, when he weighed the performance of the company with the time it took to run and the effort he perceived it would require to get to his uh, goal revenue level, he decided, look, the opportunity cost is too great, especially when I've got this growing demand for my consulting practice. So here are my top takeaways from this chat with Dustin. Number one, what's riskier, starting the thing and having it, quote, fail or doing nothing and guaranteeing that nothing happens. So nobody likes to fail, but I think we've seen it often enough on the show that from the success stories you hear, there is usually this little breadcrumb trail of discarded projects. They don't always have an obvious endpoint, but they usually serve in some way to lead to something else through education, through experience, or through connections, like in Dustin's case. It's physics, right? An object in motion stays in motion. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is failure isn't permanent or life-threatening. Most of our businesses aren't life or death, and that's the beauty of the side hustle. Maybe you've heard the um, the definition of an entrepreneur as somebody who will jump off the cliff and build their parachute on the way down. That's not for me. I want to limit my downside risk, and I think that's only natural from a self-preservation standpoint, but I've also developed, like Dustin has, this experimenter's mindset. It's given him permission to test different projects out, recognizing that if they don't work, it's just one project or idea, not like a permanent ban on ever trying anything else. So that's takeaway number two, failure isn't permanent or life-threatening. Takeaway number three is that failure is learning. We learn more from our failures than our successes. And why is that? Because they hurt. It's like watching our son, when he was learning how to walk and you know, wanting to hold his hand because he's just so unsteady, it looks like he's going to topple over at any moment and crack his head open on the sidewalk. But it's those little tumbles and stumbles and scrapes and scratches that made him learn. And now, for better or worse, he's running all over the place. I actually just read this in Ramit Sethi's new book, how he tracks his failures every month as an actual business metric. He said there are some months when he's not failing enough, and he called it failing at failing. The reason he gave was the same as at the top of the show. If you're not failing, you're probably not pushing yourself. You're probably not getting any better. So SideHustleNation.com slash Dustin or SideHustleNation.com slash failure, whichever is easier for you to remember, is where you can find the notes and links from this episode, along with a free downloadable PDF summary of this conversation with Dustin Lean from StrategicSauce.com. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where I'm catching up with a friend of mine who's basically using Facebook ads to print money. He's got a unique way of driving profitable traffic to his website. You don't want to miss it. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app and it'll be be automatically downloaded to your device next Thursday morning. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.